and welcome to episode the 36 of Tampa Tantrum. My name is Stephen Layton, and I'm joined... You're not Colin. I admire him very greatly. Do you? Chipped his style many times. Yeah. Uh, you see, there's a lot to admire about the guy, but this is Jeremy Chandler from uh, Proof Rock, uh, here in Leather Lane in London, which is where we are. And we're trying something a little bit different with Tampa Tantrum. We want to kind of want to mix it up a little bit, and part of the mixing up is getting rid of Colin, basically, and uh, getting interested people. Now, Colin's going to be doing one with somebody else as well, and, and I chose you. Yes. Mm. I know. Yes. I heard uh, minutes 34 to 36 in a temp tantrum 35 podcast, <laughs> and I knew you were coming for me. Yes, yes, coming for you. No, like, we will get to that, and I think it's like, it's really kind of quite topical that we were talking about that before we thought... How can we do this better? And we couldn't do it better because we don't necessarily understand this. Yeah, we'll get into that. Um, but for those who don't know you, I thought it might be kind of quite nice to have a little bit of a history of, of, of Jezza and how you got to be here at Proof Rock and, and all those. So, when did the, where did you grow up, first of all? Because I don't think you're from London. No, I'm from Australia. But uh, I'm, a, I'm a London trained barista. So, whereabouts in Australia were you born? Uh, Sydney. Sydney? Yeah. And then kind of grew up in the outskirts around there. Okay. And uh, were you exposed to coffee, your time, and like not necessarily working, but like drinking coffee? Because I'm, you know... My mum, my mum was on one of the um, tasting panels for selecting Blend 43 from these guys. Wow. So, uh, I think I have it in my bones. Yeah? yeah. I think there's definitely, there's yeah. definitely some soluble, uh, <laughs> so soluble stuff in the bones. <laughs> can, can everyone see that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to pour coffee while we're talking. So, te- growing up, like, did you drink coffee? Were you, what, what happened? Like, any, you know, cause sometimes people don't actually find coffee until quite later on. Some people find no, it was a latte with tissue. Yeah? Not until I was 19. Okay. But then it was a quick, into coffee curiosity, and I would visit Campos Coffee a lot in Newtown. Okay. And the saxophonist in my jazz band at the time was working for Toby Smith. Okay. Uh, and that was, you know, what was that, 2002? No, about 98. Okay. So, yeah, then, then I saw him pour a Rosetta on a Gadget, a classic. Uh, that takes some doing <laughs> as well, and that's pretty <laughs> impressive. Like you, don't, you should get him a job here quickly. You do that on a gadget classic. Yeah. He's, he was a cafe owner in Brisbane. Sadly, passed away. His name's Matthew. Clare. Okay. But um, and we've recently had Toby here giving a talk. So yeah, his his business was a big inspiration for me. But then I moved here in 2002. Why? I'm guessing. Like, it's normally a woman that makes you move like, the other side of the world. Is this so. in this case too? Very much so. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, and but, but also the news, generally. Yeah. So I was trying to be a professional jazz musician. Um, and he's looking at a hot spot for that? Is that like... Oh, yeah, well, compared, compared with my country town outside of Sydney. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, I went to school in the town where Don Bradman was born in Barrow. Uh, we have a decent jazz scene there, but I was ambitious. Yeah. But in my first week of coming here, then I walked into Monmouth Coffee, because my friends were drinking there, and ran into George Fernandez, 
one of the founding fathers of London, indeed, especially coffee. Um, and Gwillem and him were a management team there at the time. So I asked, I asked if there's any work going, just really off the cuff, and then um, he said, what's your favourite pasta? This is my job interview. It's <laughs> still there right then. And I said, gnocchi. <laughs> he's like, we'll come for a trial down at, down at the car market next week. And so, yeah. That was George. Yeah. <laughs> that, that just sounds so George. Like, anybody who knows George Fernandez is like, that's, that's his style, isn't he? He's like, first time I met him, he completely freaked me out. I was like, I didn't know whether he liked me or hated me or wanted to kill me or wanted to hug me. I don't think he wanted to do any of those things, but he, I just got the feeling he wanted to do one of them. He's, uh, he's an intense guy. So, so Mom, I mean, for me, Monmouth has started so many people's coffee journeys. I remember coming down to London you know, like in 2000, 2001, and hitting Monmouth as well, and just having this single origin kind of explosion. I didn't, I, I hadn't seen this stuff. I'd seen Santos's and Excelsior, but they were doing estates, even back then uh, and before. And well, and there's not many years between. <coughs> um, I mean, I've been scratching around for a long time trying to work out, you know, who these founding mothers and fathers are, but or the beginnings of state, single estate trading. So Toby Smith's story was very interesting when she told, which was 97, you know, a kind of odyssey to Brazil. And then scratching around trying to find um, sources of direct trade that he might be able to have. And then, um, so it was only 97 that he found a source of direct trade of coffee from Costa Rica. So. That, that period between 97, 2002 and Monmouth, I think there was a bit of a whirlwind of um, specialty coffee then that isn't on everyone's radar. I, I think with the Monmouth story as well, there was also a lot to do with, I mean, they were buying a, a lot of coffee from the counter at that time, who were starting up with this, you know, they were one of the first people to buy in a cup of excellence auction, I think they paid $1.30 for a cup of excellence, uh, and everybody said it was crazy. This coffee. Oscar's, an artist's coffee. What am I? Yeah. That, and that was in my first year at Monmouth. Yeah. Uh, Anita was on the, on the panel. So I got to try that coffee. Yeah. And I think it was an astounding 25 quid a kilo. And no one was allowed to touch it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think that, that, that what, what they did was actually start to introduce roasters didn't necessarily need the direct trade to be able to have a single estate. And I think that was always the barrier, is you needed to move container loads to be able to have that traceability. And nobody valued it enough. Um, I kind of remember like the Sweet Maria's in the US kind of starting to... That's where my first experiences of single origin copies came from. It was like 98, 99, buying from Tom's site and like roasting it in a frying pan and like murdering it. <laughs> How soluble would that be? Um, yeah, the outside would have been really <laughs> but like, it, it's amazing when you look back at how specialty coffee isn't even a real teenager. Like, it's you know, it's still living at home with mom, and it's kind of quite amazing how far we've come. So, mom has happened. You were hanging around with Gwilym, you hang around with people like George. Yeah. Um, what, what was next? Like, like, then, then I got a bit of a travel bug, and um, you know, went to South America. And then I was hell bent on being a 
indie rock star. That's a uh, jump from jazz. Yeah, I, I left jazz behind, kind of. I mean, I think it'll be there with me. I still teach over there in the corner. <laughs> uh, I never asked them if it was alright to put a piano in our training centre. Oh, it's just turned up somehow. <laughs> so we run Proof Rock Coffee and Jazz down here. Uh, so you pay this? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Okay. But there was a four-year hiatus in my coffee making then, um, and I missed. I think I missed a lot of stuff. So. Um, I, I started noticing triple strettos emerging and, um, you know, flat white establishing itself and, um, and, of course, growth of the chains, you know, there was, it was a time where London didn't have, the, that, that period of like 2000 to 2007 was a real boom time for the chains, kind of, you know. Did you get exposed to any coffee while you were travelling? Was it still something that was in your mind, or did it kind of like it had properly gone? Uh, I picked ripe coffee off trees yeah. in Nicaragua. Never thought to stick it in my mouth. And um, yeah, that's yeah. I I think I experienced what most people experience in Origin. That they, you can only buy you can only buy ground coffee, and it's, mm. uh, it's really burnt. You say that there are there's some places like I, there's a coffee shop in um, in La Paz in Bolivia called uh, Boutique that like you can go and have an Aeropress or something similar state and it's really good and they've got their roasted in store you see more of that Viva Espresso in El Salvador but definitely back then there wouldn't be any of that. Stuff. I was there backpacking in 2003. Yeah. And yeah. And yeah. <laughs> um, so did the travelling and then yep. what came and back then, and then. Um, Willem got me a job on the neighbouring cut to his, which was a crazy barbecue with smoke blowing all over on the coffee and everything. And then I gradually incinerated myself. And that was in the flower market? Yeah, yeah. and on um, Whitecliff Street. So we had these two carts running, pitch water too. Um, so then was working there and I was confident in my skills in the early days and suddenly realised that um, like, well, the, the, the technician side of being a barista, I had more or less entirely missed. And I was just really focused on cleanliness. I think that was my... Uh, it's, it's a great place to start as a barista. I yeah. wish many more baristas would stop there. That, that came from William and George back then, you know. They, I think they were able to greatly improve London espresso just by knowing how to use a toothbrush. And then as we started to understand extraction, so those, those, those years, 2007, 2008, and so on, I think that's where the technical side of our jobs greatly improved, and us coming to understand our limitations. And espresso solubility was what was, what was first. So that's, that's going to lead us into a conversation about where we're at now, trying to use our not yet. Our technician, our skills as technicians. Not yet. Not yet. I'm in charge of this conversation. <laughs> I'm in charge. <laughs> so, when did you come back to London and work on the, the store? This was 2000... About 2007. Yep. Yeah. So, that was really pretty much 
like a boom time for London. Yeah. Like all of a sudden this bomb went off. Yeah. Um, and I remember I kind of I remember sitting in Stafford kind of watching what was going on and just going, ow, like this is an explosion. I mean, how, how was it to be part of that and to be kind of involved in it? Because definitely being you know, around those guys, um, and, and I'm thinking very much of Square Mile, kind of starting 2007, 2008, and all of the, the, the taste of, you know, taste of the, the things that we're doing. Was that an exciting time to be, like, here? To, uh, to begin with, I had all these conceits that had come from rock and roll and, you know, not swagger, and was, uh, it kind of made me angry, having to... Um, having to focus on timing shots and, like I had this conviction that a good barista doesn't need to time shots you know weighing scales weren't, weren't even thought of then it's, it's funny you know if you talk to Colin about this like he he uses you know the, the time is there and he uses it but he's very much about he looks at the shot and he knows if it's going to be a good shot or not just by looking at it like because you know you do you know, it's it, and I kind of I quite like that artisan part of it a little bit. Like you know, can I use the word artisan? I don't mean that, but like that kind of like I, I'm a skilled technician here, and I know what what's coming through. But I mean, the tools have definitely helped us get better. Yeah. So did you go along to the stuff that like when they were having the taste of stuff at Square Miles Roast and stuff? Were you involved to the point where you were going along to that stuff as well then, or was it still yeah like, and the bubbling under the barista fighter stuff? Yeah. I competed a few times. Yeah. Um, and then I, I remember when Taste a Bit of Love started, and I went down there, and and they, the Stephen Morrissey was competing, and, and um, Bill was there, really, really excited about it, and I was resistant <laughs> to pay to to pay attention to the competition. Yeah. Just because I found it. A, um, oh, I was a little bit like competing over you know, swatting flies or something to me. It, it, didn't, it didn't seem um, essential to what I was trying to do. And then more and more, it insinuated its way into my habits. And um, then I became very intent on being a great technician. And then it seemed to go hand in hand with that that I would out with people that were starting to look outwards. So, and then suddenly Willem was trying, training for it. So, everything just moved over. From everyone that was working on the cuts, any techniques he was developing, practicing with James Hoffman, uh, Stephen Morrison was just adopted that day on the cuts. Was that was that exciting or frustrating? Because like, I would imagine that things were constantly changing. Well, I turned up thinking that I was a very fast, quick flash burst with a good work ethic and I was really slow. And then so as every new innovation came in, I, felt, I kept feeling like as I was developing muscle memory for things, it was slowing me down again. Uh, and to this very day, you know, Gwilym's writing efficiency structures, the proof rock where Four espressos need to be served in 90 seconds. And so still, I'm, I feel I'm training to keep up with this kind of um, the technical expectations of being a barista. Uh, and 
meanwhile, we're going out of our way to embrace the technological offerings. Yep. Ideas we're exploring, like auto steam technology, milk dosing, that kind of So, still, you know, it, from 25 quid a kilo for a cup of excellence number one retail, um, we're still. We're still selling coffee pretty cheaply, I think we're agreeing. So volume and speed and efficiency, the technical part of being a barista still is incredibly demanding. And I'm watching great shining lights like Matt Perger advocate the idea that in the future the, the role of the barista will be much more customer facing and communication. And I'm right behind that and I think Technology's going to help facilitate it. Yeah. yeah. No, I think so too. You know, and you know, that there's no different to what it is now because being a barista is all about customer facing. It's all about the, the service elements. Yeah. Um, my favourite shops um, are the ones where I have a great interaction with the barista, not where I have great coffee. Well, like great coffee helps, and it's important. But I think having a great interaction with the barista is much more important. At a, at a certain volume. Like if you, you know, you've had Nadia giving you temptation. If you went to one of her shops and you tried to sustain a 10 minute conversation about coffee flavor and origin, the barista would start feeling uncomfortable because they have a role and that role has not been selected as customer facing because they have to focus on coffee quality. And it's not very different upstairs, you know. Someone meets you and we can talk through coffee flavours and they can ask questions of the barista. But they're, they're most likely to be a barista as well, aren't they? Because you, you end up with people swapping roles yeah. and, and doing this. So, again, I think it is... Willem would probably prefer we didn't swap roles so much. Yeah? Just held your position, focused on it, instead of jumping about all the time. So, I think at a certain volume, let's say something like caffeine, okay, you know, 600 coffees plus on average. Then if you're trying to, and, and they're, they're always pulling double shots for every customer too. And they have efficiency standards where everyone should be served within four minutes of ordering. Which they achieve comfortably, but it's, um, it's very hard to have a conversation at that volume. So if it was a Lama's like a Swift auto temper, communicate, move that over. I'm so actually I thinking think about this as you say in this, <laughs> and like, I, I always, I go back to craft beer a lot when I'm talking about specialty coffee, because I think craft beer and, and, and specialty coffee industry have lots in common, and I don't go into a bar and expect to have a 10 minute conversation about the beer that I'm drinking, I, I expect them to help me, so give me some recommendations, know what beer yeah, I'll say, I want this, and I go, I'm really enjoying this, and that's pretty much the end of the conversation a lot of the time. It might be that, oh, you know, we stop this brewery all the time, and they're, they're good people, but that's it. In coffee, we actually expect a lot, our customers expect a lot more from us than pretty much mm. any other service industry I can think of at the minute for information. It's kind of weird, isn't it, that we're in that position. We're, we're lucky, though, that they're hungry for it. Yes. Yeah. Like, I, I think um, a good barometer for that that hunger in the customers is also the growth in nano roasters, if you will, like um, shop roasters coming back and it's, it's been a big couple of years for UK coffee and having, having a lot, lot more people buying proper roasting devices. And I support that too and I feel that's led by the customer demand for being involved in the 
processing the process being visible. And I don't think that the best coffee in the UK is being produced in fish tanks where customers can look through and ask questions and extract the roaster all the time. But it is engendering a great focus on all this coffee quality. Um, and we might have to have a bit of a healing crisis from it because quality might dip. Yeah. Because everyone's starting from scratch and then the customers might get confused trying to understand. Well, I think, I think the other challenge with the nano roaster as well is that it's much harder to get the quality of coffee out of origin. So you're relying on certain importers. And so then, then we're all just getting the same coffee and yeah. that's a bit boring and it's all... And I, and I agree, I think that's the definite issue. With, with volume comes opportunity as, as a roaster. Um, we, we felt that more than anybody else. You know, the, when we started, we couldn't get the coffees we wanted. Now we can get whatever we need. Um, and a cafe like us has the same experience. Yeah. You know, we can get the equipment we need if we have hit a certain term or even filling up those rolls on the bar. And there's pretty much seven full-time rolls that we'd like to fill. But we can do it with five. Yeah. But it means they're all jumping around. So pulling the story back, we got to 2009 and Gwilym wins the WBC and came back and pretty much the stall went crazy, yeah. but then almost, because it went so crazy, burnt out and Gwilym went off to do, um, the shopping, I'm trying to think the name of the present, present. Yeah. went to do present, what were you doing then, because the flower store kind of closed down, didn't it, for a while and it was just present, so what were you doing then? Well, Gwilym, for some crazy reason, <coughs> invited me to do present with him. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he was, you know, I think it was pure philanthropy. <laughs> um, and, you know, and he, him and my wife were good friends, and, you know, she worked at Monmouth back in those days too, so he was, he was trying to help us out financially, I think. And I loved present. <laughs> like it was, the, it was the first of a few places where I saw these spaces that were dead spaces that you know were, were in the coffee shop, but actually somebody tried to do something different mm. with the space. Mm. And I just thought it was super exciting to see that that development happen. Yeah. Um, and, and and I think it was very pioneering at the time. I know I know Colin takes a great deal of inspiration from. 3FE in the, the nightclub at present and that happening at the time yeah. and, and all that and it, it was all around about the same time that stuff was kind of going on. And I think for, the, for both those experiences, <coughs> quite similar, it served a really useful purpose to get um, an internet presence yeah. and to, to, to sort of start to create a brand. Um, but we, it, it lacked the sort of liberty that we needed and we didn't have a training facility. So as we realised that we were developing skills that we wanted to pass on, we had no way to do it. And we were thinking, you know, we had ideas we could sort of charter other people's cafe spaces, and, you know. Every, there was a growing professionalism at Square Mile, you know. What, what felt to many people like a social centre was becoming a world-class roastery. And, and other roasters were converging as well. So. Um, maybe uh, feeling a little bit, but not feeling competition by the end of that point, but, but needing to do, to, to really have control of what we were trying to offer, we needed a bigger space. So, 
how did this place happen? Because I, I, I'll be completely honest with you, the first time I came here, I went, oh my god, this is way too big. What are they going to do with this space? Like it, I, I really feel, because I, I looked in just like, how much is this costing rent? Like, this is huge. This is a big, big place. So, how did you choose here? What was the, you know, because this is a great part of London to be in as well. I mean, if, you know, Farringdon is, you know, it, it's not cheap real estate. Yeah. You've got a lot of footfall outside and all of that. So, that, I'm sure, impacts on how much you pay for the rent here. How do you go from being in a clothes shop? To be here, like, and, and that big jump in costs and resources and fish eggs and all of that. I think of extremely eccentric um, real estate agent who wanted to help and liked us, and it was Soho Books, Triple X Bookshop, the famous chain of nationwide Triple X Books, and uh, it was a sex shop. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'll help get this out there, yeah. We're, it was a pawn shop. We're in the dirtiest of, of all sections. Over there was the change rooms. Mm. Yeah, these, these are the, well, fortunately the map's glued onto the shop, shop fittings. Yeah. For the uh, so, the combination of it being a housing association property, so it had, it was within a traditional Land Tenancy Act. That helped. Um, and. Soho Books, actually knowing Willem, one of, one of the, the son of the owner knew him and wanted to help, and so they didn't ask for a premium, which is kind of like a bribe. But yeah, <laughs> you, you can expect London property is, is as corrupt as corrupt can be, isn't it? I mean, they, they, you know, places like this do not come up often, and when they do, there's a lot of competition. So we really have a lot to thank them for, and also extraordinary timing. So just cycling past on my bike one day, going past a bookshop which I sort of had always earmarked in my mind as being picturesque and would be a great coffee shop, and had even considered approaching them to do a similar concept as present. That would have been so cool. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was dignified erotica upstairs. Um, yeah, and photography. Dignified erotica. <laughs> You're painting a beautiful picture in my mind. <laughs> so, then suddenly, uh, yeah, the wheels were in motion, but we we kept startup costs so cheap, it's extraordinary thinking about it now, because as we try and renovate our training room, you know, we're, we're trying to build a second classroom here and improve the lighting, you know. Hopefully, teach some roasting courses here if we can work out of emissions being under control, um, that kind of thing. And, and, and we have bakery, so there's lots and lots we need to renovate here. And just the cost of renovating here is going to cost more than we spent upstairs for something that's not really in the customers. I mean, I mean, I think at that time it, it was really well known the relationship between William and Simonelli as well. Yeah. And I know that you know they're, they're like the machine, the, the lever machine, yeah. and, and, and present and. You know, the machine here is all very much kind of that. And now just like, I don't know anybody that doesn't love Gwilym. Like, Gwilym's the best. And everybody kind of wants to be part of what Gwilym is doing. And, and I think, I, I think I definitely could see from the outside, you know, and quite rightly so, taking advantage of those opportunities as they came along and, 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 and using that. Yeah, we didn't buy an espresso machine until the Black Eagle. So it's pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> so, which also meant that we learned 
how to use a lot of different espresso machines yeah. and kind of how to fix them. And so there was an intensely strong DIY work ethic, and I think um, we've we've really made quite a few mistakes and <laughs> have um, have needed to, to employ a business manager to help us. Yeah. And we had a kind of business mentor in class who's one of our owners. And, and he, he was always a believer in the process and invested, doubled his investment capital to get us through the first year. So, so the first year you were Bernie Bullock? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Is that scary? It was too much of a concept shop. And we had a brew bar, which we were proud of. And, um, but no real efficiency structures on how long it would be reasonable to wait for for a siphon coffee or even just kind of putting our finger up in the air and deciding what price we should charge for a siphon. And we had an ethos that we wanted this kind of expensive brew method to be a loss leader or accessible because we thought it was exciting and, and it, we had some strategy but it wasn't careless. But really it was just so much tightening our belts and doing so much ourselves. Uh, and I think there's a, maybe a better way. Like, I think really intelligent businesses like All Press that can steer themselves with lots of business acumen have had an easier time. And it's kind of funny in Kafka because we don't, like, it's almost, it's almost seen as dirty to be business-like and to be profitable. Like, I, I've heard that before where people, you know, like, oh, they're too professional. How can you be too professional? Like this is business. Like, to be sustainable, you need to make money. It's it's really important. Hey, so you're saying that you the first year you you were burning and burning, you know, burning money, and then how did you go, go go from that to the next to the next stage? What, was it purely efficiency? Was it purely just like tightening a workflow and things like that, or was was there a, a particular point that you can kind of go? It was that. Um, it was. Bringing in more income streams, I think, really helped. So we had to build a little kitchen. And then we had to establish our training in a much more formal way. And then it got much, much more comfortable. And, and meanwhile, um, our volume of coffee sales was quite low. Because I think we'd set ourselves up as a, as a concept shop and we'd enriched customers to more efficient businesses that might have a loyalty card or might offer um, milk or semi-skin. You know, had, had all these kind of concessions to their customers to make life easy or they might have done 12 ounce cup sizes. We had all this agenda, which I'm not sorry that we put out there, but nothing about that agenda was um, was profitability it was, <laughs> it, was, it was ideology yeah and that ideology is still there yeah this is not a get rich quick scheme um, but the ideology it's about, it's about making the right compromises as well isn't it there, is, there are times within business that actually it's the time to compromise you know it's the time to do something that makes your business be profitable turn that and there's certain principles that Will never do, you know, and, and and I think that's really important in any business um, to have that 
pure stubbornness on some points, you know, even though it doesn't make any business sense, you know, like, would it be, would it be better to do 12 ounce drinks, you know, we all kind of know that people still will come in, I'm sure people still come in and say, I want a big cup, and you have to turn them away and say, we don't do big cups, that's actually a fight worth having, you know, is it a fight worth having to not have sugar, you know, yeah. I kind of, I, 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 you know, like, they're the, the, the different fights you can end up having. Well, there's a chronological, chronology to those fights. So we, we needed to have the fight about like extracting coffee better. Yeah. Uh, and maybe the lever machine helped. And suddenly it became apparent after lots and lots of people explored that idea and invented machines that could pre-infuse or invented better brew baskets and all that. And we suddenly learned how to extract coffee better. And if we were inefficient during that time and less profitable, we had to learn it. But pretty much it meant doses dropped and water increased, and that was the simplest solution to the whole thing. And so that had to happen, and maybe it also had to happen that there was a moment where we just focused on drink quality instead of customer satisfaction. Um, but I think what's happened now is that so many fantastic baristas and coffee shops exist all around the world. Uh, that can compete on drink quality with us. Um, that what we have to offer as trainers, um, maybe as knowledge leaders, is that we can show them how to be that efficient. And we can hopefully dissolve some prejudices against technology if, if we can prove that the technology is better and get behind that. You're obsessed with dissolving. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's interesting that I remember Matt uh, Matt Perger did a talk in Vienna for time to time, and he talked about uh, basic biometrics and just like this is the future, like this is what we have to do. And what if you got sitting upstairs on the bar, but you've got like a black eagle that is all about using the technology, switching the button off for you, switching the button off for you, because there is no skill in going. <laughs> you know, you know, it's funny uh, asking about the history and getting on the carts because it turn, turned up. And for the first time in my coffee history, I had to turn the button off. <laughs> and I was like, just couldn't remember for, for weeks to switch this button off. And then so we sort of back to school. Is it, is it, <laughs> when Willem was competing in Atlanta, uh, Colin was also in finals that day. I mean, he couldn't turn a button off that day either. He turned off the shots, but pressed it again and turned round. And it was talking to him. And he looked, he was like, ah, <laughs> better read mango. So he can't turn buttons <laughs> off either. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So today in Proof Rock, like what if if I'm no nothing about coffee, come off the street into Proof Rock, what can I expect? What can I expect as a newbie customer coming in there? Am I just gonna like it, just get a coffee and that's it, or am I gonna get something more? What's what what do you want customers to leave the door kind of taken away with them? Well, I think um, with our staff training and the style of interaction that they get right up front, um, they have an opportunity to taste coffee by a variety, and they also have the opportunity to hear about what coffee is scoring better than others, yep. um, and hopefully come to understand that the coffees we've selected are the best ones, not like trying to keep them for ourselves or put big, you know, unattainable premiums, because they might, like six quid for a filter might seem unattainable. Um, because you can get 
outstanding batch brewed coffee for two pounds fifty. So hopefully they can also participate in that process, get some tips, visual cues, um, but also get something to eat yep. and comfortable. And a hybrid style of table service, which, um, which is not really hounding them to extract more cash out of them, because we do have a big place. And so we're not needing to rinse more money out of people at the moment, because we're in a position where we're going to so the business works. And I think it's largely thanks to the training centre. Which is where we are now. And so that they can expect that training centre to get better and offer more courses and those courses to deliver more information and to give more cafe support. I want to go on to the, the other stuff before we do. I just I, I I find it really interesting the relationship between yourselves and Square Bowl. It's always been an incredibly strong relationship. Um, and I think it's been it's something I as a roaster, we have similar relationships with some of our customers, and they're always the ones that we both gain the most out of because you know the, the loyalty of the, the customer means that we can give them more attention and stuff. Was that a purposeful thing? Was that was just something like these guys really fit what we want to do, or has that just grown over time? Well, I think in the beginning, um, James knew a bit more about coffee than we did, and so it was a natural. Um, it's a bit of a one-way street, probably, but we were friends and had um, the confidence to, to feedback and to have a dialogue. Um, and uh, and it was just fun, you know. You could, you could go there and ask Annette opinions on coffee, and you know, you could. You could suggest things, and you could get training, um, and they would come here as customers. And I think they they were aware that we were uncompromising in the pursuit of high-scoring drinks and trying to, trying to improve that. So they were pleased that we were representing them as well as we could at the time with what resources we had. And when the quality wasn't there, there was a frenzy of activity in trying to work out why particularly in the early days, mastering the RO system. And, you know, that was probably the biggest frustration. And not being able to extract their coffee past 17%. And trying to work out what or who to blame, and was it them or was it us? Or, but that culture was always um, friendly and positive. And we didn't, there was never an occasion where we sent back big consignments of beans and said we can't use these. Or, so we trusted them and they trusted us to help each other's businesses build. So that's why it worked. Uh, and also the conviction that their coffee at the time in London was the best coffee we could get our hands on. So that helped. And as, as we've seen the same growth in great coffee shops and skilled baristas and you know, more and more countries entering WBCs and great blogs starting and everything. Um, it's been irresistible to try some coffees from roasters like The Barn, who have also, also part of that kind of 
Well, starting with them, they were square mile because they came to the start, weren't they? And then they started roasting yeah, themselves exactly. and, and evolved into this uh, this other thing. And, like, and, I, and I've noticed the, the, the rise of guest here that wasn't there before. Yeah. Is that customer led or is that barista led? I think our staff drink half of the guest coffees we sell each day. So, <laughs> uh, it's, but it's at a volume where we can support that. And our staff are baristas because they want to drink high school and coffee. Uh, and there's a limit to how much they can put away. So um, we can, that's part of their wage, that's part of the experience of being a barista. And we can support that. Um, so it's not customer-led on mass. So the technology side, I, the RO system. I remember kind of pretty much here being one of the pioneers of having an RO system in in the early days. How many challenges has that technology kind of brought you as you entered it into the business? And is there anything that you kind of wish you could have cut out six months of faffing around with and just got to the end point that you ended up getting to with technology? I had a good conversation with um, Morton from Coffee Mind the other day. I went on a roasting course with him and it was really good. And, and he said from the chemistry perspective, when you look at coffee, water and extraction, a chemist, I'm, I'm, I may, sorry if I'm misquoting you. <laughs> but it's okay, nobody's watching. The, the chemistry doesn't really add up to what the sensory scientist experiences, or what, you don't have to be a sensory machine to pick this up. But, you know, you increase, well this has incredible five grams of bicarbonate and it tastes like bicarbonate. So, um, but if you make a coffee with that, or if for example, you make a bit, and it just suddenly tastes like frosty coffee. Oh so powdery. You know, it's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, even if you make an Americano, with that water, but you extracted it with good RO grains, and it still tastes like that. And it, but the chemistry can't really work like that because this was perfectly good extracted coffee a second ago, and now it tastes like biscuits. So chemistry can't do that. It's, it's our sensory skills that can. Or if it, if chemistry can do that, it can't do it yet, or in a particularly conclusive way. But it's patently obvious to us as humans. So, um, as, as we came to understand the problems with our own, I think we actually blamed the water much, much too much uh, in, in whether or not the coffee was extracting. Because we, we, were, we were more focused on espresso and trying to squeeze the numbers above 70% extraction. It wasn't happening, and we softened the water, and we put more and more in, and we try adding minerals to the water, and uh, extraction wouldn't budge. So RO is RO, it does a good job, I think. Yeah, it's perfectly serviceable. I'm hoping it's over there. It's a bit wasteful. <laughs> <laughs> There's two systems there, and the wastewater is flushing the toilet now. Um, so there's waste, and you need to use it wisely, and they're expensive. Yeah. Um, but suddenly, extraction budged confidently once you used more. Yes. And there's a conundrum. So we can't look back because we didn't have records on solubility back in 
conclusion the subject is. You are, you are, and I think it's about time to bring you in. And I think it's the appropriate time to bring the elephant in the room out. So, um, yeah. Uh, we didn't have records or convincing records five years ago when we started using our own. So we've only got kind of convincing digital records going back about two and a half years. And it's only really six months ago that we have records with the fields in that we need to make a better assessment on extraction. But I hasten to point out, knowing what happened in in Tamp Tantrum 35, yeah. <laughs> that sensory is the key element to to our QC program, which which does involve solubility testing. Yeah. But we won't buy a coffee if it doesn't get a prerequisite score of let's say 85. Yeah. And I'm not out there saying that we're in great calibration with you or, you know, with, with other companies, but we have gone out of our way to learn how to score coffee and how to train all our staff. And, and I think they really get behind that process because they see that it will help their careers if they try to get into coffee importing or become judges and work in roasteries. So we can give them those skills straight off the bat on day one. Mm -hmm. um, so all our senior baristas need to be doing our solubility testing for, for us and we trust them and we try and count them. So there's the baseline score. Now if the solubility doesn't hit a baseline and the score does, the only thing that, the only conclusion we draw from that, it doesn't go back to the roaster. Mm -hmm. And I think that's quite something to stress that yep. your roaster is trying to run a business, you're trying to run a business. And if black ash turns up, oily ash turns up, and a big mistakes happen or... Which it does. Yeah. It does. You need a good enough relationship with your roaster to negotiate those terms. Um, so we're not making big demands of our roaster, and that doesn't really happen, right? The quality's there to avoid that. So it's the sensory that we make the decisions on, but if we're going to brew espressos and we don't want to put a massive amount of water through the coffin, because that would solve the problem, then we need, we need some way of gauging if the coffin is extracted. Because, I'll show you, if you want to have a look, oh wow, I mean we could, we could flick back you do realise that people have just seen your pin code on there now and they've just been basically stealing all of your money and your phone. <laughs> Have a look at some score sheets and we've got lots of advice on how to form these. Your loyal customer Gordon Howe uh, I call him Mr. Spreadsheet. Mr. Spreadsheet has been invaluable to helping organise this better and move forwards. Um, and we're still learning what fields we need. So, I just a question that's popped into my head. Yeah. That's kind of like so. We're saying that the sensory score is the most important. So, say you get a ninety-five coffee. It's amazing. Yeah. So it's really stunning coffee. You really want to share it with everybody. But its solubility is absolutely packed. You have to chuck lots of coffee at it to make it where you want it to taste and how you want it to be. 
Would you stop that? Well, we've got a system for these things, which is good. So we, we'll dial in our brew bar, and solubility is less of an issue there, but we'll dial it in on a Monday, put our three best scoring coffees up there, and solubility is a little bit more forgiving when you're on a brew 60 grams per litre or yeah, yeah. brew ratio. Um, and any of the other coffees can go on the shelves for retail and people can explore origin customers at home can fight those battles and they'll be aware that the highest scores are up here and whether or not there are higher price on the shelves probably doesn't come into it. But in our opinion, the best scoring coffee is up there. So if a coffee only got to 16% and we bought some of it, we won't send it back. Um, not that that's happened. So the lowest we've seen is 18% extraction. Okay. Since we've been doing these tests. Yeah. And that's about 12 months. Okay. In, in cupping soil. So everyone can roast coffee. But the, the unusual thing is often we'll see 24% in one bag, 18 in another. And so the, the solubles available, in, you know, if you wanted to make a decent cup of coffee, does it correspond that with the one that only got to 18%, you have to use a lot more? And I think that's the most interesting area where you get to with this. Because you can still make a yummy coffee with it. High school, you can make a great pour of that. You can even extract it well as an espresso. If you could work it. So we haven't we haven't managed to mine all the data out of these spreadsheets we put together. Because we don't have enough data and we haven't for long enough been incorporating probably the most key field of all, which is now in there. And this is the index of roast field. So I think I, we can account for like robusta coffee being soluble, yeah, because it's less dense. And everyone understands you can make a good strong cup of robusta, uh, and everyone also understands that if coffee is much much darker and more developed, you can make a strong cup. More developed, or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> and maybe right at the point where it's entirely cremated, you can see a drop. Yeah, if solubles have just gone up the chimney. Um, but the index of roast will allow you to organise if the coffee is soluble just because it was kind of burnt. And we didn't think to organise that field for more than six months. So we're back to square one. And I know you've got a problem with pocketbook scientists. <laughs> the, the problem in coffee is we have so many. That's the problem. They're all walking around in their lab coats, touching away, going, oh, you're doing that wrong. And he's like, well, I said that to him, you said that to Willem. And, and he said, you are a pocketbook scientist. And I said, some of my best friends are scientists. And that's true. So we have all these skilled people around us. You know, we run cafes and we've got scientist customers. And but the interesting part that you said was that we can't bring the science and the sensory together. And ultimately, what the most important part of what we're trying to do, I think, as a specialty industry, is the sensory part of it. I don't need to lecture my customers on science. I need to lecture them on, this is how it tastes. This is not lecture, that's probably a bad word. But 
to, to share with them how it tastes, what it is, and to help them understand the things I've seen on my coffee table. And this I is the problem I have with the pocketbook science, is that it doesn't correlate with what the customer needs. It actually fulfills our own echo chamber. What we need as specialty coffee people is we feel we need to like no more. And this is good. Well, the, the nano roasters need it. Mm -hmm. Because they, they need a shortcut. So if you if you looked at the banana varieties that are being roasted around the world and origins growing them, if you, if a nano roaster with the technology could have it just extract a profile based on a whole bunch of profiles that corresponded with their roasting device. If there was this enormous database that could just pop a profile, Roast, it doesn't work like you that. Can even though. measure the roasting doesn't work like that. No, well, I'm not going to argue about roasting with you because I'm not a roaster. No, no, well, no. I think the problem is <laughs> like, like if I'm roasting and it starts raining outside and the air pressure changes, my airflow changes straight away, and I've got a whole different beast going on, and it's yeah. it's impossible to replicate those. This is my I have a big problem with crops that yeah, crops doesn't to call it, but. Um, because because of this thing, we become so reliant on the numbers that actually we forget to pay the attention to the roasting. Um, like to the point of we unplugged all our computers from the, the, the roasters, and we won't I won't let them use the computers yeah. at all because they were painted by numbers when I wanted them to paint a masterpiece and, and you know and react to what was happening. And literally, they were just colouring in the bit. Oh, I need this colour now, and I need this colour now. And it's, it's, it's I, don't know. I think. The, the, well, it's sensory is numbers too. It is, it is, and I, and I, I did a, I did a tab tantrum talk about four years ago, talking about like forget the numbers, mm -hmm. and I hate score sheets, and, and I, I know we need them, and I know that we need the science part, but I just, I don't know, I don't know how they live together. Um, how, however, the roaster gets the beans to us, mm -hmm. whether they embrace uh, some sort of big data approach yeah. together, whether, or even if you could put your roaster in a vacuum and you know. Three doors and airlocks and all that, and you could really roast. If, it, if there was no way to roast by numbers, baristas don't care. Yeah. You know, what we need is to know how all the coffees we've ordered compare, and if we should do anything different once we've got our numbers. And there'll be lots of arguments moving forwards on how best to ascertain the solubility of coffee, because I'm not sure that we've got the best way of testing it. That, that's that's my other concern with it as yeah. well. That I don't know whether we're I, I, we're using a meter stick to measure, you know, millimeters. It's so maybe we need to measure maximum solubility. You know, stick it in a saucepan for three hours. Or yeah. There'll be ways, and and I think moving a long way forward, we might even. I think it would be useful to go to a time where the actual soluble content of green coffee could, in some way, be communicated from the importer to the roaster. It'd be amazing. You could actually see the sugar content. You can see the sugar content of orange juice. Yeah. I know this is unsustainably expensive to do this kind of testing at every origin, and some people don't need it. But baristas kind of need it. And I'll tell you why. This is quite interesting. And this is how we've improved as a company. Because I think in about the first three or four years of Proof Rocks Brew Bar, looking back, embarrassed with me, but we were very focused on recipes and very focused on extraction and serving a consistent TDS to the customers. But it meant that we always put 15 grams of coffee and 250 grams of water and tried to hit 1.35 and every single coffee origin 
we were moving extraction around to get 1.35. And I say we we're moving extraction around, we were taking the same quantity from each beam, but if one beam's maximum solubility is lower than another, if that occurs, I think it's safe to assume without evidence that must occur, knowing that some coffee's picked when it's ripe and it has higher bricks than coffee that's green. Yeah. So you don't contest that. No, no, my, my, yeah. bi my, biggest, my biggest problem with the post that you put up when you put, you put it up was that it was almost saying, it's the roaster's fault, not the barista's fault, we've been all okay. <laughs> like, and that was my biggest part with it, because I think what it is, is, listen, the solubility can be high or low, and if you know that information, you can use that information to extract it better, or to change a recipe, because I think that's what the ultimate part is, is the barista has the tools at that point when the coffee's delivered, to get the very best out of the coffee. And I don't think you were saying that in the post so much, I think you were saying much more that like, Blame the roaster. No, it's just. And that's the way. That, that was, was definitely being, the part. I was being job. defensive. I was yeah. saying, and I, I think it's true, that the roaster had a tendency back then to blame us. Yes. Um, but none of what none of us really. And it was also with espresso. Nothing to do with yeah. coffee. Yeah, yeah. has always been lovely. Um, well, you see, I, uh, you see that you see the Bentley espresso. Yeah. I did not invent the term omni roasting. I did not invent that. I, I credit you with that. I know you do. I'm sure I didn't. I'm sure I didn't. But um, I couldn't find an earlier reference. No. Yeah. Uh, that's a great thread. You see Tim Barney weighing in saying, it's ridiculous to roast the same for every coffee. <laughs> I, it, it's hilarious though, because I've asked every every roaster that I've kind of come across, and say, espresso roaster, say, so what do you actually do for your espresso roast? Take it a bit darker. That's what everybody says. It's like, just take it a bit darker. And it's like, that but doesn't that, make any sense. I think that doesn't make any sense when you've got tools within the barista toolbox that doesn't have to take it darker. And yes, it may mean that you need to use more coffee or less coffee. Yeah. But my ultimate, my ultimate aim is about getting what's on the cupping table into the cup. I, and I feel that the compromise of taking it a bit darker, so it's a bit easier, uh, or it's a bit cheaper, a compromise I compromise, like your compromises within the shop, mm. roasters have their own compromises as well, and, and, and different beliefs and, and, and uh, ideas. And that's, that's my biggest problem with it, is that I don't want to take it darker because if I take it darker, I will no matter how, like I take it to the edge of where I can develop it as much as I want to and need to without getting any roasting notes. Like that's my ultimate aim most of the time is to get the most flavour without the roasting notes. And I understand that the roasting process develops those flavours. Yeah. It's really important. But it's finding the balance between now if I take it a little bit darker for espresso, I'm gonna taste roasting notes in it. Because I've took it to that level where I'm scared to take it any further already. Um, well, if we could communicate <coughs> prior, prior to ordering a batch of coffee, if we're taking that quantity of how long we're going to pull our shots, that could very easily communicate to what, co what colour we're to. Because but you will still taste the roast notes if you if need more solubility from well, the coffee. Looking in our journal, we, we don't notice a great difference between espresso roasts and filter roasts. <coughs> um, there's no market difference between solubility of red brick and the solubility of a square mile filter coffee. It's just that in an espresso, a bit more acid must have gone up the chimney, so it's not going to taste as sour. So the darker for espresso... But you can deal with the acidity with other things. With a glass of water. No, with, <laughs> with tamp 
with dose, with yield, all of those things can be dealt with. The acidity can be can, can be dealt with without the compromise of throwing a bit of acid up the chimney. And I think that you end up the, the problem is when you do the bit of acid up the chimney kind of part, you lose some of the deliciousness in the cup because that's something. When I'm looking at a coffee on the cup and table, I'm, you know, we're looking for acidity, we're looking for sweetness, we're looking for body. Those are the things we're looking for. If you're throwing a bit of that away, you're throwing a bit of the tastiness away, and the reason why you actually selected that coffee. Well, I think I think once sort quasi big data analysis can look at this, we'll identify varieties of coffee that have more sugar. So anyone that wants a really roast-free espresso yeah. needs to be brewing a variety of coffee that's high in sugar. Uh, so they don't have, so that they can serve it shorter, still get all that sugariness that'll balance the acid, and that'll become a more common offering in an espresso blend. And maybe blends will become something more determined by what varieties are in than than what. Because I don't think it, it's not like stick a low density Brazil and get a nice espresso. Yeah, that doesn't work. No. But I mean, people are keen about the Kenyan espresso, but. I'm not. And, <laughs> and, and consistently, Kenyan has seemingly, and, and this is only at a glance at a small amount of data, because once you, once you look at what we've been recording with usable observations, there's only about 100. But the Kenyans are higher, but they're not just, what are they higher in? Do you, do you believe, do you believe every coffee sugar? can be an espresso? Um, only if, only above a 50% EBF every coffee. And if you, if you want to stray lower, then better have a glass of water. Then. I want to go back to the point you were just making about um, only above saying to the roaster, I'm going to be making only below a 50% EBF. Going to the roaster and saying, okay, we're going to be pulling at this, so roast for this. How about if the roaster turned around to you and said, I'm roasting to this, you should be pulling to this. Is that which way around? Like, how would you feel as a shop owner or as a barista if I came to you and said, this is how you should do it? Like, this is how. Oh, well, that, that's, there's the rub, Steve. Yeah. Because, <laughs> because baristas are great at brewing coffee. Who's better? Yeah. You know, there's no scientist out there that can make, make as good coffee as a barista. Yeah. Um, so, we, our skills as technicians um, it is a resource, yeah. And, and roasters need to pay attention to that resource, mm -hmm. which I think they do. I think I think that there is a, there is a feedback loop within that. Yes, except they also have their own espresso QC, um, and that's fine because espresso is getting easier to do. I mean, you're not seeing so much. Stockholz, Northsouths, and did we used to do that <laughs> shit? We did, didn't we? <laughs> so as as we get better at understanding what kind of technical skills required to get consistent extraction, um, I guess it becomes easier for anyone to do espresso QC. Um, but still, at this point in technology, I think our skills have a role, and also the frequency that we make our observations has a role, because Proofrock puts about, about 10 man-hours just as a cafe into pure QC without selling anything. Yep. Um, and that's arguably longer than a lot of roasters put in. Um, 
and there's information there that could be very useful too. So really, we're we're doing some pilot tests with um, with the barn, with the cabra, with the great coffee shop in Bucharest called Steam, and we're, we're piloting a little sort of shared score sheet, shared database to see if we can look at any trends and. You know, we've paid statisticians money to look at our data and I can happily conclude that there is no evidence that more soluble coffee scores higher. You'll be pleased to that. <laughs> I am pleased that that's, that's without this sort of index of roast contingent. But um, what is very clear is that we need a hell of a lot more observations before we can make any conclusions. So I think we need to have to, have to start cooperating. So, uh, I, I, agree, I agree that there is nobody better than a barista to make espresso. I agree with that. But I also agree there's nobody better to decide where a coffee needs to be roasted to than a roaster. <laughs> sure. Now, I, I also, I'm actually going to agree with you on another level, and I think there does need to be a better feedback loop, and I think we need to communicate better. Yeah. And the things like solubility is something that we can look at. But actually, doesn't necessarily mean that a score, like the, the, for me, sensory always trumps any science, like always. Um, and if that can be communicated at the same time, like we had a customer two weeks ago return coffee because he wasn't soluble, like, and he was like, "What do you mean wasn't soluble? Like, oh, he didn't hit the numbers." And this is the danger of the numbers that we, we actually use for the solubility. So a lot of it comes from Scott Rowe's Roasting Handbook and uh, Scott Rowe's other books as well. And I'm a massive fan of Scott. I think like, nobody in my mind has done more to push forward the coffee industry than, than Scott in the last five years. Amazing work. Amazing work. I disagree with so much that he says as well, though. Like, disagree so much. Like, we would sit in the room and fight for hours. Like, it would be, yeah, it would be like cat and dog fighting. We both love delicious coffee. We both have different uh, interpretations of how to get there. But what worries me is those numbers that we're using have come from one particular perspective. And as amazing as Scott is, he doesn't have the special badge of the University of Coffee where he's the head teacher and decides all the rules. Um, if we're looking for people that you know, come up with the rules, we look at espresso techniques with, um, uh, what's his name from Seattle, um, from Vivace. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, like Shoma. Shoma. Because Shoma is really, if we're going to look for a god of coffee, then Shoma's our god of coffee. Because he, he gave us all of the, this is how you make espresso, this is, you know. Now, I, I went to Vivace where we were in Seattle last year and hated it. Like, it was horrible. It was one of the worst coffees I've had in a long time. No, his customers love it. His coffee's soluble. Yeah, his coffee's soluble. So, but the thing is, like, we, we, we have to look at the numbers and go, do you know what? Sometimes we're actually going to have different perspectives on it. And just because these sets of numbers are written in a book, like, I can, I can write a book. We were deciding earlier we were going to do Peter and Jay catch chasing the ball. Scott Rouse said to me a week ago, he said, arguably, the only two useful things that have happened in the last 20 years in coffee VST uh, baskets and coffee refractories. So I know somebody will be pleased with that. He might not. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Fidelio, so maybe, maybe he's the god. <laughs> Do you know? I, I, mean, I think there's a there's a another one. Another I, person who's so he pulls dark roast triple roast too. Yeah. 
and, and can't understand why no one else can get 21% extraction with a triple estrator. Yeah. yeah. And, and this, this is it, we've all, we've all got these different approaches and certain numbers and points and things that don't become law. Um, you know, there's, there's so many more. And sensory has to trump everything, always. Well, the customer that sent the coffee back, uh, I mean, returns... I can handle returns. I can handle returns. It needs to be negotiated, doesn't it, at the beginning of the business transaction? It depends how important the customer is as well, because yeah. some customers you can't have a fight with. You yeah. just, you know? Um, but it was like... But if they had numbers... The was, yeah, no, but the thing was, was it tasted? Yeah, was it tasted? Yeah, but it wasn't soluble. And it's like... Okay. Like, it was tasty. Change the recipe. Do something to make it more tasty in espresso. If you need to put more coffee in, that's what that coffee needs. You know, it's... Um, well, I'm, you have a, like, expansive offering of coffee. And I think it would be of interest down the track to discover that certain varieties have certain extraction potential. Mm -hmm. So it could be that some roasters might push a variety of coffee further than its limits of what's in it need to go. And, and without making the coffee taste burnt, there might be certain ways that it's roasted that you would apply to a Kenyan coffee or that you, you know, if you have your first crack at 80 to 85 percent of total roast time, and you're really pushing for good development because that's what's the trend in roasting. Um, you'll conclude that this is an inferior variety of coffee. Um, but if I can produce 100,000 observations, all indicating that people extract Katura um, a little bit more than they extract Tai or something. That will be of interest to you. There's no doubt. Like when when the data is on mass and there's a huge indication that everyone is having the same experiences. It's how we use it then, because you can have all the data you like. And if, you, if you can actually use it to do something, then that's that's good. But pretty much as a roasting, that's you're trying to get the best out of that coffee anyway. So by changing things, you could potentially damage the sensory scores of that coffee. Uh, Just trying to chase something that. Isn't like that isn't the solution. Like for yeah, me, the quite often the solution is for you. Yeah, quite the solution is to change the recipe more than to change the way that the coffee is roasted. Um, now, can we use solubility to see whether something is massively underdeveloped or massively overdeveloped? Maybe, maybe that's something we can do. But we have to have. We, we I think we do. We're doing it without the measurements. We haven't got the measurements for it yet. I think. TDS is such a blood like you had such a blood well, time. Our, our stick is pretty refined. We've, we've definitely seen a change in people's use of cutting bowls that it, it seems quite a good idea. Just using technical skill of baristas that we should stir all the way down the bottom. And just spinning a little spoon around the top is leaving a whole lot of tasty down there. It drives me crazy when I see people breaking and get in there. Yeah, so you have to, it's clear, it's very, and, and just any little test, if you take a, a sample from the top and from the bottom, it's a hell of a lot stronger down. But as you do that, you, you increase extraction, because you're, you are going to increase extraction, yeah. and you're adding an element of fuzzy logic. So the fuzzy logic is, did you, what size was the spoon? Can you repeat that yeah. every time you do it? Yeah. Like you've, had, you've, had, you've added an element of uncertainty in there. 
So, so all of a sudden, are you measuring the same as if you do the next bowl with exactly the same one? I, I think that, that this I, is... Going back to Gordon, I think his, his World Brewers Cup routine, like, stir the hell out of it for 30 seconds, then stop, or, you know, something about that idea seems to make more sense to me. It does a little, but if you've got... Polish it through... With, through say you've got three judges doing that, and you've got somebody that is much more kind of like, much more vigorous, and somebody who's a little less vigorous, and somebody who's in somewhere in the middle. Like, you, again, you've made that element of fuzzy logic that are difficult to repeat. And, and this is what I'm saying about, I don't know whether we've got the right tools to measure, and actually how we can use the data to improve what we're doing. Well, the person that will find this out won't, maybe won't be a Buddhist, they'll be a mm. scientist. It'd be really nice to get I've, a scientist. I've got a scientist in mind. Yeah, Watson. Yeah. <laughs> Someone that is paid to work these things out. Yeah. You know, that can get funding to it. Like and you know what? I'm all for. I'm. I really am about like. I, I'm really keen to see development in coffee. Just to get better at it, and because we are, we're not very good at it. Like, if we look at what we do, consistency-wise, we're really bad. And so, and, and science has a massive part to play in coffee. But I'm really sick of baristas being scientists because if baristas are the best people to make coffee, scientists are the best people to do the science. And yes, but barista, and we need to invest more in that. Baristas are good people to be the lab technicians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I have no problem with that. I'm problem with when they come up with the solutions. Um, I'm probably when the, the barista comes and tries to come up with the solutions. They create the polemics. Yeah. Someone can having, having a blog does not make you a scientist. It's you know, uh, and, not, and that's not directed to you. That's directed in but general. It, I'm yeah. just guilty. I, I, my my attempts at science have shown me science is hard. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and I need help and money. Yes. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm not going to give up, but I know that um, the the skill set takes years to develop. I think this is really this is where the SCAE, SCAA, and, uh, the World Coffee Association, when it comes together, because you do know there's a takeover going on. The SCAE is getting taken over by the SCAA. I heard you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when that happens, like I would love to see our trade associations doing the science instead of us trying to do it on the back of cigarette packets. But what do they do the science on is the important thing. Mm. Like the, yes. I think the Grinder research project didn't, didn't, it just came out with non-conclusive evidence, even if it was science, because they weren't asking the right questions. Or the question was too general. I, I noticed that scientists want to go as general as possible. So they, they'll think, okay, we'll just do coffee, and how does coffee taste with milk, and does milk change the taste of coffee? And of course, we can conclude. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> it's much easier results to get. Have a definite result at the end, because that's the thing with science. Is quite often science fails to come up with the answer. Mm. It, it actually comes up with a blurry kind of mess because life isn't black and white and simple. And, um, so we, I think uh, any barista out there can give you a strict list of priorities of what they want found out. Yeah. So. So, so you're in charge of the SCAE, the SCAE education, <laughs> you're in charge, I've just put you in charge, and you've got a big pot of money to have one piece of research done, what's your one piece of research that you would do? What's the one thing that you would like to throw money at to solve? Solubility stuff. I want to know how many solubles in general are in different varieties of coffee, so I can approach them in a certain way. Like, if I, if I have sirloin steak that's a certain amount thick, I've already got a pretty good idea how long I should cook it for. Mm -hmm. Do you know? And if I've got lamb chop, and just just received wisdom, like my grandmother could have told me, but no one has told me 
in any book how I should approach different varieties of coffee. Regardless, of, I think I think every writer can develop coffee once once they've got the hang of it. And and you you firmly believe that variety over things like process, things like maturity of picking, and then we um, want exactly the same research for that. Okay, okay, because <laughs> this is my thing. Is I, I I I'm one of the biggest fans of variety. I I, I love playing with farms with lots of varietals and separating them out and, and enjoying those coffees. Like that's pretty much my gig. Yeah. Um, but I think the processing of picking has far bigger in, uh, far bigger implications for the roasting and uh, ultimately the extraction of coffee yeah. than variety does. Well a shared database will give indications of if natural coffee is being the problem is, is what's a natural coffee? Like these, these, these are the sure. rabbit holes you end up going down. I know because natural coffee from the next but door. At least, farm we're, at least we're making some subdivisions, and our early data was just extraction and dose and temperature and yield, and that wasn't enough. So, I'm, if, 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 like, so I'm going to give my question to me because your answer is rubbish. Like I would love to see more classifications of processing. I hate that we have three classifications of processing because. You can have, like, and I would love to see more classification process. Then we can start drilling into data. But until while we have these blurry, you know, messy blobs of, you know, washed, it's washed. Like everybody does it differently. Yeah, but they're they're coming, aren't they? And like the honey, the honey yeah. thing has happened. Honey's been interesting. It's been. It's, I mean, there, there is an element of development that's been been really good. So um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to see more of that. I think we've talked for a very long time. It's been great. It has been good. <laughs> um, I'm gonna have to, I'd like, I want to see you at a tamper tantrum giving us a talk on solubility. We've all the data that we pulled together. I'd love to, like, I want to take this opportunity while it's on camera to get you to start that work. So, yeah. Well, I'd be honoured. No, it'd be, it'd be amazing. I, I'd, I'd be really interested to see, and, and I'm not convinced yet. <laughs> but I love the fact that sensory is more important. Is that me not win? I almost agree. Can I win? <laughs> Please let me win. I've been nothing. I'm a Sunderland fan. I've been nothing. Listen, thank you very much. Jeremy, that's been, it has been fun. It has been fun. And um, yeah, over and out. See you later.